Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for your love, your care. We ask you to bless this time as we look at your word. Show us what you would have us to see from that. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, last week we covered the baptism of Jesus, or excuse me, the temptation of Jesus after the baptism. And now we're going to look at his first recorded message in the book of Luke. So we're in Luke chapter 4, starting at verse 14. And Jesus returned in, in the power of the Spirit into Galilee, and there went out a fame of him throughout all the region around about. And he taught in their synagogues, and being glorified of all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and, his, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and stood up for to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of Isaiah, where he went... And he, when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, to recover sight to the blind, and to bring at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, and gave it again to the minister, and sat down. And all eyes were on him that were in the synagogue, were fastened on him, and he began to say unto them, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. And all bare him witness and wondered at the gracious words he proceeded out of his mouth. And they said to Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, You surely shall say this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. Whatsoever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also in your country. And he said, Verily I say unto you, No prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you of a truth, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, when great famine was throughout all the land. But unto none of them was Elijah sent, save to Seraphatah, the city in Sidon, unto a woman that, is, was, a, that was a widow. And many lepers were there in Israel in the time of Elisha, the prophet, and none of them were cleansed, saving Nahum, the Syrian. And all they in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath, and they rose up and thrust him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill whereupon the city was built, and they, that they might cast him down headlong. But he, passing through the midst of them, went his way and came down to Capernaum, the city in, a city of Galilee, and taught them on the Sabbath days, and they were astonished at his doctrine, for his word was with power. All right, this is Jesus' first recorded message. Um, for those of you who don't know, Jesus grew up in, Galilee, in uh, Nazareth, which is in Galilee. But his home, when he started ministering, when he wasn't wandering around, was Capernaum. He did not live back in Nazareth again. So this is his first visit back to Nazareth that after the baptism that is recorded. And it says that he went in there, and in verse 14 says, He returned to the power of the Spirit into Galilee, and there went out a fame of him throughout all the region about. In other words, he was teaching in Capernaum and Galilee. He was doing miracles. And then he gets to go back home in verse 15. Now, this is kind of an interesting thing, because when you get to go back home, you either get two, two things. The home, hometown boy makes good uh, uh, excitement, you know, and they're expecting that he's going to come and do miracles for them. 
Or you can also have the downside, people remember you when you were a kid. And this is something I have seen in churches where kids have grown up in church that people still think of them as a kid. Uh, and most of us have the same problem with our own kids. You know, our kids can be 30 or 40 years old, and they're still kids in our eyes. You know, they're, you know, we know on one side of our brain says they're an adult, but on the other side, they're still our child. And this is what we have when Jesus comes back. They remember him as they say, isn't this Joseph's son? And we're going to cover why that's such a big deal as we go into this. But it says he goes back in verse 16. He came into Nazareth where, where he'd been brought up. And as his custom was, it was Jesus' custom to go to the synagogue every Saturday. Wherever he was at. When he was in Capernaum, he went to their synagogue. When he, when he went down to Jerusalem, he'd go to their synagogue. Wherever he went on Saturday, he went to synagogue. So he's in Nazareth and he goes to the synagogue, which is custom. And this is kind of an interesting thing because when he was there, he, he went in and he stood to read the scriptures. Now we're going to give you a little bit of history of what happens in a synagogue in general. Uh, you come in, they might sing a few songs or not sing a song, depending on what synagogue you go to. If they sing songs, they're out of the book of Psalms. Then they will rise up and somebody will read a portion of the Pentateuch. And the Pentateuch is broken up in such a way that every year they read the entire Pentateuch. So they break it up into 52, 52 readings. And every week they would read a certain amount of the Pentateuch. And if you are in an Orthodox Jewish facility, they will read the prophets over a period of five years. All right. If you're in a non non-orthodox you may or may not read the prophets so Jesus gets up and he gets to read from the prophets and I want to bring this up because Jesus did not read the whole scripture he was given to read he's only going to read one verse and one sentence out of the second verse and this is this is what he reads he's reading from the book of Isaiah chapter 61 verses 1 and the very first part of of the verse 2 and he says the spirit of the Lord is open is upon me because he hath appointed me to preach the gospel to the poor he has sent the message me to heal the brokenhearted to preach deliverance to the captives to recover the sight of the blind to set at liberty them which are bruised and to preach the acceptable year of the Lord and Jesus stops now most of you in this room are not scholars in the Hebrew, Hebrew uh, ideas. You do not realize that this was a Messianic prophecy that was, that was given, that the Messiah would come and bring about good things to Israel and the nations. And Jesus' next words when he sat down to start speaking was, this day has this prophecy been fulfilled. Now we read this and we don't think of this as a really big deal to be said but this is Jesus' first declaration recorded in the book of Luke that he is the Messiah and again we also don't understand what that means because we're not Jewish but the Jews go Messiah King going to throw make Israel the center of all of world rule now he is coming back to Nazareth having been raised there 
And their thought is not that he is going to be king and everything. They think we've got an egomaniac in our, in our midst. This guy actually thinks he is the Messiah. He lives in Nazareth. Nazareth is a northern part of, the, of Israel. It is not where the, the land of Judah, the descendants of Judah, live. The descendants of Judah live down around Jerusalem. The Messiah had to be of the line of David or from the tribe of Judah. And he is, we, we, went, through that we went through that genealogy to show that he is from the line of Judah, he is from the line of David, but he's living in the wrong part of Israel to be from the line of Judah. And this is going to be the problem that the scribes and Pharisees all through this book are going to have. He's Jesus of Nazareth. Not Jesus of Bethlehem or G Jesus of Judah or any of these things. He's identifying with Nazareth. And this is going to throw them uh, apart because Jesus had to be born in Bethlehem. Now, we know that he was born in Bethlehem, that he went to Egypt, then he came back and he starts living in Nazareth. So we know how he fulfills all of that. They don't seem to know all of that. They're just looking at him saying, he is claiming to be the Messiah. What is his claim on the Messiah being the Messiah? And we see this. What are the three the, the points that he's bringing out? He goes, I've come to preach the good news to the, to the poor. Now, in the, in the Hebrew part of it, it says to the meek. Now, I'm not sure if you all understand what meek is, because most people think meek is... Somebody who has no strength, no, who's, a, who's a wimp. Meekness is strength under control. All right? Moses was called the meekest man that ever, ever walked on this world in the, in the scriptures. Now, if you know the story of, me, of uh, Moses, he was not what you think of a, as a weak person. He led three and a half million people lost his temper a few times, so he wasn't fully under control either. Uh, you know, matter of fact, he got so mad when he came off, the, off Mount Sinai and with the people sinning that he broke God's handwritten tablets. Uh, you know, he got so mad at the people that he struck the rock and was not able to go into the promised land. You know, so he had his problems. But for the most part, he was under control more often than not. And this term really comes from, if, you're, if you know people who do horse training, they say, and especially in that day, they said they meeked a horse when they got it under control. That horse was still strong, this, the horse still had spirit, but you could sit on the horse and it would respond to the reins. It was, it was now meeked, it was under control. Jesus came to preach to the meek. He expects us as Christians to have strength. The world looks at us as Christians and says, oh, you guys are just a bunch of wimps because you let anything happen to you. You don't go out and, and make things happen. No, because God is in control and all I have to do is be submitted to his control and he makes things happen and my meekness allows him to be in charge. The world tries to do things their own way and God says, I've come to preach to the meek, the good news. The second thing he was told, he was came to heal the brokenhearted. Hopefully you know what that means, that when you've been brokenhearted, you go to God and he brings healing. He allows us to be able to put our cares on him. And he says, I am your strength. 
Later on, he says that you are to be yoked with him, and he is the one that takes the heavy weight of the yoke, and we just kind of follow along. He guides us, as it tells us in Proverbs, uh, in Psalm 23. He leads us through the shadow of the valley of death. He sets a table in the midst of our enemies. He brings us to green pastures. He brings us to still waters. He does everything for us to bring this brokenness and, and heal our brokenness. The other one says that he proclaims liberty to the captive. I love that one. Are you captive to some sin in your life? Jesus brings liberty. He brings salvation to us and allows us to have no condemnation as we're learning in our verse because he has paid the price for that penalty. He has broken the bonds of captivity. If you've gone through the, through the Truth Project with us, I love one of the things Dale Tackett said. He said that we, we need to see the lost world as POWs or captives because they are captive to sin. They have no choice but to sin. When we have Christ in us, we at least have a choice. We can let him be our victory or we can fall and be captive, captive to the sin, but we're, we should not be captive to the sin because we should be living in victory. Without him, we're without hope. We are going to sin. Paul said it, you know, he said, I do the things I don't want to do. I don't do the things I want to do. Oh, wretched man that I am. We don't have to do evil, but our soul and our flesh wants to do evil. So we're going to find ourselves doing evil more often than we want to. But you know, the world cannot ultimately choose to do good. They may do some good things, but even when the world does good things, it's usually motivated that I'm going to get something back in return. Uh, I'm going to get the praise of the, of the world. I'm going to get a tax break. I'm going to, people are going to think of how wonderful I am, whatever it might be. What did Jesus say when we do good, when we give? Don't let your left hand know what your right hand does. You know, we do without consideration of what the reward's going to be. We just do. We just give to him. We have been freed from the captivity that we're in. And most of us know what it's like to be captivated by some sin. We probably still are captivated by some sin in our life. We will constantly be battling that. And Jesus says, I have come to bring liberty the, that we are not bound up. I can tell you, working out to prison, you know, when those guys get to their last week, especially the last day, or the morning that they're going to get to walk out those front gates... <laughs> You don't see bigger smiles on anybody's face anywhere. Okay, and I don't care who they are. They're smiling when they get to, when it's the day they get to walk out that gate. Because now they have liberty. Nobody's going to tell them when to get up, when to go to bed, when, when to eat, when not to eat, when to, when to go to class, when to, when to have activities. They get to go out and have liberty. This is what God has given us. And we need to really understand before our salvation, we are captives. We have no rights. We are bound up by our, by the, by the, by our sin. Jesus came to make us free of that sin. 
and be able to, does that mean everything's going to be perfect and, and extra happy and everything? No, we're still going to have hard days. We're still going to have hard times. We're still going to trip up and fall. Because, you know, one of the hardest things is when you are free to start thinking free. Most of us want to bind ourselves back up under a bunch of laws. And churches do this all the time. Well, now that you're no longer under the law, let me give you the rules that you have to live by to be a good Christian. That's not what God gives us. He gives us liberty. Now, liberty is the, the freedom to do what I should. Okay? Now, that doesn't put a bunch of rules on me, but that does tell me that there are certain ways that I should live. But they're not laws and rules that I'm living under. And this is the beauty of the walk with Christ. Paul even goes into it because he told the church in Corinth, he goes, you want to eat meat offered to the idols? Go ahead. It's just a hunk of stone anyway or a hunk of gold anyway. It's not a big deal. But if it's going to offend your brother, don't eat that meat. You know, and so what do we have to do? We live by the law of love. What am I doing in my life because my sins are forgiven. Grace is so important for us as Christians. We live under grace. Grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. He gives us all the benefits of heaven, all the benefits of being the family, and Jesus paid for it for us to be able to do that. Now, Paul says, should I go out and sin because I, so that grace will abound more? And he says, God forbid. You know, every one of us, including myself, do enough sin that I don't need to go out and purposely sin to get more grace. I get plenty of grace from God without purposing to sin. And you do too. God has set us free. And you go, well, what's the purpose of the laws? What is the purpose of the rules? To show us that we need God. They are his standards. And the one thing we will find, the more we walk with God and the closer we draw to him and the more he changes us, the more we will walk in the rules that he put in the word. Because they are him. They are from him. They come out of his character. So the more I draw closer to God, the more I become like him and the more I will follow his rules. But I'm not following his rules because there are a bunch of rules and laws. They're, I'm becoming like him. And this is something that's very important. You know, they say, whoever you hang, hang out with, you're going to become like them. You know, and this is very important. We teach our kids this all the time. Don't go out and hang out with all the guys that are hoodlums because you will eventually become like them. And that is true. What's the advantage of coming to church and hanging out with other Christians? We probably will start becoming more like other Christians unless they're bad influences. <laughs> Hopefully they're the good influence on us. But we have that influence. The more we worship God, the more we hang out with God, the more we pray, the more we're in his word, the more we will become like him. And our influence to the world will be God. And this is something that's very interesting. The more God is inside me, the more people will see God. But you know, the world does not want to see God. It is kind of interesting I don't know how many of you have ever experienced this, but you walk into a room and everybody hushes and be quiet. And they're all looking guilty. And it's not you. It's the fact that you brought God into it. 
I've actually had people ask me to please leave because they, they feel so convicted. And I didn't say a word. I hadn't said a word, wasn't planning to say a word. They weren't my, they weren't my congregation. They weren't my disciples. They were the world living in sin that can't handle the light of God walking in. We bring God's presence everywhere we go. If you're saved, you bring God's presence with you everywhere you go. Now think about that for a moment, especially if you go to places you shouldn't go. All right, it's bad enough when we go to work and, and hang out with people that we bring God into it. But, but you go to the, the uh, party that's having lots of drugs and alcohol. You have just brought God's presence into that party. You go to the X-rated theater and go, go there. You have brought God's presence into the X-rated theater. Think about all the places that you bring God's presence into. Now, if you're bringing him into the wrong places, you're kind of putting a cover over him as well because it's, you're, not, you're not where you're supposed to be and you're probably more feeling more guilty than they are if you're sensitive at all. But we're not captivated by sin. And we bring God wherever we go. This is something that's very important for us because God's presence is already working on people when we open our mouth to witness. Which is why sometimes we get back some really strange re responses. Because God went before us and, and the Spirit is convicting them and then they take it out on us. They take out their anger against God on us because we brought God into the situation. So don't take it personally when people attack you for God. The apostles all said, thank God we've been found worthy of suffering. We need that to be our attitude. When we suffer for Christ, we need to be saying, thank God I was worthy of suffering. Not, oh, woe is me. You know, and many times our answer is, oh, woe is me. There's so much trouble being a, being a servant of God. Then the other thing that he told him is that he came to open the prisons. All right, that's what it says in the King James Version is open the prison. In this one, it says, it says he came to open the eyes of the blind, which is a possible translation of the Hebrew, and this is the translation of the Septuagint. Now, one of the things I want you to understand, there's going to be a training session at this point. When you read an Old Testament quote in the New Testament, it it's being quoted from the Septuagint, not the Hebrew. Now you go, well, what's the Septuagint? Well, the Septuagint is the Greek version of the Hebrew Bible written around 300 AD. Greek had come into power and they decided they were going to translate the Hebrew scriptures into Greek. And they hired 70 Hebrew scholars to translate the Hebrew Bible into Greek. And that's why they call it Septuagint, which means 70. So they, they hired it. So when we read these scriptures in the New Testament and you go back into the Old Testament and read them and you see a difference between them, it's because they are reading, they're quoting a different translation. All right. Uh, they didn't misquote it. They're quoting a different translation, much like if we were to memorize something in the King James version of the Bible, and then open up a NIV version of the Bible, and they don't always say the same thing. Uh, so it just gets you the on there. You know, we think translations are a new problem in our world. There have been always been a problem. 
All right, and this is one of those problems. But Jesus says, I've come to open the eyes of the blind. Adam and Eve, when they were in the Garden of Eden, what did Satan tell them? Eat this fruit and your eyes will be opened and you will know good and evil. What actually happened to them? They were blinded to the spiritual world. We are blinded to the spiritual world so often. And Jesus said, I am come to open the eyes of the blind. Open the eyes to spiritual things. How many of you can remember back when you, before you got saved and you tried to read the Bible? And you looked at the Bible and yes, you understood that they were words. Yes, you, were, you could read the words. But you probably said, like so many other people I ever talked, I didn't understand anything. It made no sense at, at all. And then you get saved and you open up the Bible and all of a sudden the, the words are jumping off the page and they mean something to you. Why? Because the one that opens the eyes of the blind is now living in you, opening your eyes to the spiritual truth. This is important. We cannot know spiritual truth completely. We may know the facts. We may know the ideas of spiritual truth, but until we are saved, we will not know the truth and the faith that comes from the truth. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The more we read God's word, when we're saved, the more we read his word, the more faith we get. And the more faith we get, the more we understand what we're reading and the more we will be drawn into his word because now it's making more sense. And then the more we read it, the more faith we get and draws us into it more and more. As Christians, we should be devouring this book, hungering for this book. I've, I've talked to people, I can't stay away from the Bible very long. Not just because I'm a pastor, but I can't stay away from the Bible very long. I like to read my Bible just as much as I like to eat. And it's very obvious, I like to eat. <laughs> okay? Uh, and I see people who, are, who say they're Christians and never read their Bible, never feed their spirit. And I'm thinking, I sure wouldn't want to eat once a week physically. I kind of do like to eat, and, I, and I'm bad. I don't always eat every single day sometimes, but I do like to eat, and I, and I want to eat often. Are we feeding our spirit with that same like? Are we hungry for word if we miss the word and went for one day are we starving for it the next day hopefully we are if we're truly his child we should be wanting the word getting into the word building our faith and the more we build our faith the more we trust God the more we get to know God the closer we get to draw to him and the better off we are and then he says to preach the acceptable year of the Lord now, he stops at this point. If you read Isaiah chapter 61, verse 2, it goes on to talk about how he's going to build a kingdom and everything's going to be centered in there and there was going to be trials and tribulations. He starts talking about the tribulation and the millennial kingdom. He had not come to fulfill that yet. The Jews did not break the two apart. They did not recognize that Jesus came to die on a cross to, to save sinners. And that there would be a period of time between the time he came and died on the cross 
to the time that he came back as victorious king. We are getting closer to the point of his returning as a victorious king. Will it be in our lifetime? I kind of think so, but if not, it's, we're still closer. But Jesus is going to call all the Christians home for the marriage supper of the Lamb in heaven. We will have a celebration for seven years while on earth, Satan is going to do terrible things on this world and it will be very close to being hellish on earth. Not completely because God's still in control. He's not going to let everybody get, be killed. But 66% of the population of the world will die during the seven years of the tribulation period according to the book of Revelation. It's a lot of death. And Jesus then will come back when Israel's being attacked, being lined up to be attacked by the entire world and rescue them and build a millennial kingdom. Jesus stopped reading at those verses. He stopped reading at those verses because he said, this day has this been accomplished. He's telling them the Messiah is here. The first half of those verses, the Messiah is here to give you the good news, to know that you are rescued. Then he closed the book and he sat down. Now we kind of don't understand this because in synagogue you stood to read the scriptures and there are certain churches that hold that mentality that when you read the scriptures everybody is to stand in respect to the scriptures i kind of like the idea but i'm never going to make that happen happen in a, in a church but i like the idea that the honor of the scriptures is that people stand when they're read that was done in the synagogue now also in the synagogue the teacher sat down after they read and the people stood up <laughs> Now, I kind of like that. You all stand and I sit. You know, <laughs> uh, we don't do that in our churches. <laughs> but in the, in the synagogue, they stood for the reading and the teacher sat down and then they would teach while the people stood. Jesus sat and everybody's looking at him. What is this teacher going to teach? And he says, this day is it fulfilled in you. And they're all looking at themselves and it says... They bear witness and wondered at his gracious words. Jesus spoke grace. Now, again, we don't fully understand this because the scribes and the Pharisees were not nice to people. They accused everybody of being awful, terrible sinners going to hell. And that they had to repent and they had to go to the temple and, and put a bunch of offerings in there and offer their sacrifices. You know, they never said anything nice to people. It wasn't their, their calling. They, they were the righteous ones. They were the ones following all the rules, supposedly. And they made sure that everybody knew how good they were and how bad you were. Terrible messages to give people. And Jesus speaks softly to them. They're still hung up on the fact that he said he was, that he's an egomaniac saying that he's Messiah. But he's speaking kind words to them. And they're having trouble with that. And, G and they're going, isn't this Joseph's son? He thinks he's Messiah, but this is Joseph's son. We know that he worked in the, he worked in the carpenter shop. He, he grew up as a carpenter right here in this city. How can he be Messiah? They're questioning. They're full of questions in their minds. And Jesus answers their questions because he says... You're going to give me the, the proverb, physician, heal yourself. And he goes, 
And I also know that you want done what was done in Capernaum. You want me to do miracles. In another place, it says that he could do no miracles in Nazareth. Why? People did not have the faith. This was the, the son of Joseph. We know him. He grew up. He's a carpenter. He's not a miracle worker. He's, not, he's nothing special. He, we, we, we bought our chairs and tables from him. We bought our, our, our furniture from him. He's the one that framed our houses. You know, we know who he is. He's, he's nothing special. And that lack of faith kept it from ever happening. And Jesus said in verse 24, the, no prophet is accepted in his home. How many of you have ever tried to witness to your family? It's a tough thing to do, witness to your family. Especially if you were a black sheep of the family and you're now coming telling them how good God is and how he's changed your life. And they're all looking at you like, right, we've heard this a hundred times. What are you trying to pull this time? Jesus wasn't a black sheep, but he was still, the whole attitude was, who is this who thinks he's so, so much special? We know who he is. We watched him grow up. And from what they're saying, Jesus was not some great prophet and, and, and teacher as he was growing up, which kind of makes us wonder, what was he like as a young man? Now, we know at age 12, he, he was teaching the, the priests at the, in Jerusalem, and they were amazed at what he was saying. So we know that when he did speak, he spoke with authority and, and clarity. But they're not looking at him as a prophet. He's the local boy that was the, the, worker, in the worker in the carpenter shop. Now Jesus is really going to irritate them. He's going to tell them, you go, you want me to do what was done in Capernaum? You know, I'm not, and I'm not accepted here. Now he gives them two stories which you may or may not remember. Elijah. Elijah prayed that no rain would happen until he spoke. And for, for three and a half years, three and a half, seven and a half. I'm, three and a half years, I was right. Three and a half years it didn't rain. And Jesus says, well, there were lots of widows in Israel. And where did Elijah go? He went to Sidon, which if you don't know, is northwest of Israel in a land known for sinners. <laughs> and he says, Elijah went to Sidon and gave a widow nourishment in Sidon. Then he goes, you have Elijah. He goes, there were lots of lepers in Israel. And none of them were healed, except Naaman, the captain of the guard of the Syrian army, came to him and got healed. Jesus is saying, you want me to do great things, but it, you're not the one that's going to get them. You are not the one that God is going to reach out and do. This makes us wonder sometimes, God, why do you pick one person over another? The answer is, I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea why one person gets sick and dies and another person gets, doesn't get sick at all. Another person gets sick and healed. The one thing I do know, God is in control. Uh, I have learned a very important lesson in my lifetime. There's one God and I'm not him. 
The more we can really understand that, the better off we're going to be. You know, the other thing every one of us knows is there's not a one of us in this room or anywhere in this, in this world that God has ever asked for advice from. God has never come to get our advice. Now, sometimes we try to give him advice when we're praying. God, we really want to have this, you know, we really, this really should happen. I think this is how you should make it happen. You know what? God's never listened to me when I've given him advice on how to answer my prayer. What is Jesus telling them? These miracles aren't happening in, in Nazareth. And the people got angry. First off, here's local boy claiming to be Messiah. Now he's telling them that they're not going to accept him anyway. <laughs> and he's telling them that others are going to get the get the blessings and not you. What a message. Yeah. Jesus had some really wonderful messages. He knew how to write good messages to make everybody feel good. And now if you don't get that, that's being very facetious. That was not true. Most of the time when Jesus got done, people were offended because he called sin a sin. Now he wasn't accusing them. He just said, this has happened in the past. This is what's going to happen here. Jesus oftentimes said, said things that drove people away. He'd gathered a whole crowd, and he says, most of you are going to be offended by me and not want to come back. And it said they all left him, and he turned to the disciples and said, are you going to leave too? Thousands of people following him. He said something that drove the entire crowd away. I sometimes think about this. In America, our churches are all designing to try to get as many people into church as possible, and that oftentimes means don't speak about sin, don't talk about the blood of Christ being the only way to heaven. Don't talk about Jesus being the only way to heaven. Do everything you can to water things down so you never offend people. Unfortunately, that's not the gospel message. The gospel message is an offense to those who sin. And I've said this many times. I've sat in churches for a long time. And I've even said it many times. Most of the time when I'm preaching, I'm stepping on my own toes as much as I am anybody else's toes. If you're not sitting in a church where you are being offended by a message once in a while, you need to go find a better teacher. Because that teacher is not teaching truth that is going to offend you. Now, what do most people do when they get offended in a church? They go, and go, they go out the back door and never come back in again. They go find another church until they're offended and then they, go, then they walk out that door and they go to another church until they're offended and they walk to another church until they're offended. That is not how we should respond when we're offended. When we're offended by the word of God, and we know that it is the word of God, not just somebody being offensive, we go, God, help me get over that area because that means something that I am sinning is, or having trouble with has been touched. And you know what? If you have a broken arm or an injury on you, the last thing you want to be doing is having it touched. You go to the doctor with an arm that needs to be reset. And you know one thing that's going to happen is that doctor is going to feel that broken bone. Then they're going to pull that broken bone back into place. And then they're going to wrap it up with a cast, if you're lucky. All of that hurts. But all of it is necessary. Spiritually, there are times when the Holy Spirit is going to step in and say, 
I'm touching this area that you don't want touched. And it's going to hurt. And he's going to say, but it is going to hurt so that it can be healed. And we need to be able to keep that in mind. Now, the people's reaction was, was really good. They, they got angry. They all stood up and they drug Jesus out of the town. Their intention was one thing. It says they were taking him to the top of a cliff to throw him over the, off the cliff. Their intention was to kill him. He claimed to be Messiah. That's bad enough. He told them that they're not worthy of having the miracles done in their town. He has angered them, and they're out to kill him. And a supernatural event happens that you might not ever really notice in verse 30. It says, but he passing through the midst of them went, the, went his way. They're dragging him out of town, and all of a sudden, he just walks through the crowd. The crowd is angry with him. They're dragging him up the hill to kill him, and he just walks, the other, walks against, the, against the crowd. I, mean, I don't know how many people have ever tried to walk against a crowd, and Jesus just goes against the crowd and walks through the midst of them and goes back to Copernicum. Just leaves, just leaves town. And in Copernicum, he starts preaching in the synagogues and teaching in the synagogues. And they have a whole different attitude of him. First off, it says in verse 32, they were astonished by his doctrine. They were amazed. What was his doctrine? Grace. Grace. Too many times people preach law. They preach rules. They preach good works. Jesus was preaching grace. That nothing could be done to earn your salvation. And then it says in the last part of this, and with power. This is one of the things that kept being talked about. The scribes and Pharisees always would say things like, according to Rabbi so-and-so, this is the answer. According to Rabbi so-and-so, according to, according to. They quoted other men who quoted other men, who quoted other men, and every once in a while they would add something to it. Jesus did not quote other men. He told them, this is what it means. This is what is true. All through Paul's times, the same thing was said, he, he speaks with power and authority. Because when the Holy Spirit is in us, we speak with the authority of God. And that's not just teachers. How many times have you shared somebody and you knew that it wasn't you sharing? You, know, you just started speaking and the Holy Spirit filled your mouth and you knew that it wasn't you and it wasn't you and authority was being spoken. God gives us that authority to be able to speak. Jesus demonstrated that authority and it amazed people. This man just isn't quoting other leaders. He is speaking with authority. He is teaching and teaching us in th things we did not understand and, and know. He taught grace. Now, if you've studied the Old Testament, you know that grace and mercy is all through the Old Testament. There's a lot of rules and, and discipline as well, but there's grace and mercy being taught all through the scriptures. In the New Testament, it focuses mostly on grace and mercy, 
But it does not rule out the fact that there are punishments for disobedience. And one of the greatest examples is Ananias and Sapphira. Now, I don't know how many of you would, un would how amazing that would be. They've been giving gifts. People are saying they're giving all their gift. They come in and say they've given all their, and lied to the church. And they were struck dead in the church. Now, I think if God struck more people dead for lying in church, <laughs> we would have a whole different attitude about church, wouldn't we? If we realize that God is so righteous that he does not want that kind of thing happening. Sometimes we go way too far the other direction. And this is something that is happening in Christianity all through time. Sometimes we get so far into grace that we forget that God has rules and that he is righteous and he is just. And then we start swinging back the other direction to the place where we forget that God is gracious. And if you study his church history, there's about an 80 or 90 year cycle between the two. Right now we're coming back from over, over, over grace. But you know, if I'm going to fail and I'm going to be wrong, I want to be wrong on the side of grace. I always want to be gracious. I understand that God has rules. He has justice. But God is gracious. He loves us so much that he sent Jesus to die for our sins while we were his enemy. We need to be looking at the lost world in that way. How easy is it for us to get angry at the lost world just because they sin? They have no other option. Sinners sin. If I expect the lost world to act like a Christian is supposed to act like, I'm going to be very disappointed because they will never act righteously. They are going to sin. The sad thing is we as Christians sin. We shouldn't, but we do. But we're still sinners. We should not be surprised even when a Christian sins because we sin. We try to put this big, heavy burden on every... Our, all of you all are not supposed to sin and ignore any sin that I do. We all tend to do that. But we need to realize that if I want grace because I sin, I have to show grace to another sin. Even if it is grievous to me that they have done, I need to show them grace and love. Why? Because they stand and fall before God. I am not any person's judge. You're not any person's judge. If you want to be a judge, you're in a bad place anyway because you're going to fail and it's hard to judge people when you're already failing. We need to be able to give grace and love to one another and lift them up and say, I see Jesus in you. I see Jesus. It is an amazing thing to watch people start serving God and see what God does with them. To watch people bloom well past whatever you thought they could do and sometimes beyond what they thought they could do as they step up to serve God and, and do amazing things for God because it's all God that does it. If I think I'm going to do anything, I'm going to fall flat on my face. And I was you know, talking, I'm a type A driven personality. I like to make things happen. I have to be very careful that I don't try to make things happen on my own. Because I, I can force things through. It's, that's my personality, to force things through, make things happen. I have to be really careful to submit to God and say, God, what is it you want done? 
and then also give him room to do it. That doesn't mean we sit back and do nothing, but we are not the driving force behind what God does. It is all him. And we need to keep that in the, in the moving. Are we really amazed by what God does? Now, and I think about that a lot. Do we get amazed by God? Do we get amazed by his word? Do we get amazed by what he accomplishes? Or are we so jaded that we never see what God does around us? I, I've met, especially non-Christians, that say, well, I've never seen God do anything. Wow. You, you know, but I also know they're blind. Their eyes have not been opened up. They are blind. They don't understand what God is doing. They don't see God. But for us as Christians, we should see God in just about everything we do. The fact that I woke up this morning, not in heaven, was a, was a gift from, well, I guess it's a gift from God. <laughs> Sometimes I would like to be in heaven and be over with, but, but the fact that I woke up in this world for another day is a gift that God has given me to reach out and touch somebody. The fact that he gives us oxygen every day and doesn't let it deplete is a gift from God. The beauty that's around us and all that we see and do is a gift from him. Our opportunities to share Christ with those around us is a gift from him. We need to start seeing these gifts and reaching out and taking advantage of them. Lord, we just thank you for this day. Lord, if there's anybody listening to this message that doesn't know you, we ask that today they will accept you, that they will say to you, Lord, I am a sinner. I repent of my sins. I accept the gift of Jesus Christ as my Savior. Come in and indwell me and make me one of your children and change their life. And Lord, for those of us that know you, Lord, teach us to accept your gift each day. Draw us closer and closer to you and give us opportunities to reach out and minister to others. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friends, where will you be when you die? We ask this question of a lot of people oftentimes, and the biggest answer we'll get is, I hope I will be in heaven. If hope is your answer, you don't know God, and this is a problem. We all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of the sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. If you do not know for sure that you're going to go into heaven, please today make your decision to follow him. It is simply just ask him, Lord, I am a sinner. Please come into my life and save me and make him your Lord. If you've said that prayer, let us know so that we can send you a new believers packet. You can contact us at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or even pastor at chloridebaptistchurch.com. Or you can just send us a regular letter at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona. 86431. Thank you very much for listening and have a wonderful day.